0: My pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Spike Gildea, uh, professor and director of grad studies. Are you still director of grad studies? No. No, okay. No, I, <laughs> I stopped website. all of that. Your website needs to be uh, updated. So yeah, uh, he's a professor and former director of graduate <laughs> studies in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Oregon. Uh, Spike's primary interests are descriptive and documentary fieldwork, historical, functional, typological syntax, and historical functional phonology. He's been working in South America with languages of the Caravan family since 1988, when he began field work in Panare in Venezuela. He has worked with speakers of 15 Carib languages. Uh, uh, outside of the Caravan family, he has worked briefly on Rama, Kiche, Lhasa, Tibetan, and Kurtoep uh, languages. Uh, His monograph on reconstructing grammar, comparative caravan morphosyntax was published by Oxford University Press in 1998. He has edited and co-edited many other books, including most recently Reconstructing Syntax from 2020, Nonverbal Predication in Amazonian Languages, Typological Studies in Language, and uh, that's from 2018, and uh, dichronic construction grammar from 2015, as well as numerous articles and book chapters. Uh, Spike earned a BA in English Literature, yay, and an MA and PhD in linguistics. All of those degrees are from the U of O, so Spike is a triple duck. Mm. Uh, Prior to returning to the U of O in 2000, he was an associate professor of linguistics at Rice University as a 2022-23 Oregon Humanities Center faculty research fellow. Spike Gildea has been working on a project titled, uh, I'll I'll just give you the title that's there, sound (laughs) effects and storytelling, uh, ideophones in Wari, Kiana, and other caravan languages. Please join me in welcoming Spike Gildea. Uh,
1: um, Well, thank you. Uh, it's fun to be here and fun to have a chance to talk about this. So I just want to start with the thank you. I've been doing so many other things for so long. It, I'd forgotten what it could feel like to just sit and focus on a topic in research. And this was a particularly nice one because it's something i would never done before. I didn't even know what an idiophone was. Uh, well, I mean, I sort of knew because I had worked with a bunch of them and working with various languages. But I just said, oh, that's an idiophone. I don't have to worry about that. And then I went back to this text and it's like, okay, I have to worry about them. And that's what this talk is about. Um, so I said I was going to do three things on my, on my application. I was going to do a serious translation of this one story. And because it's full of idiophones, as a part of that, I was going to collect lists of idiophones from all the related languages and say, all right, how do they line up? Can I reconstruct these? Because I do historical linguistics. I want to reconstruct them. And, you know, the experts say you can't. And I said, watch me. We'll see how that went. Um, And then I wanted to just sort of explain why is it that I have to deal with idiophones in this language? Why can't I just sidestep them like I have been all the rest of my career? Um, And that's what this talk is about are those three issues so this is complicated you need some background uh as i already started you know talking beforehand with some folks who were here early what do you mean Wedikiana? i never heard of that well yeah neither had i until 2017 when they decided that was the name of the language um uh, what are these caribbean languages what's the family what's the backstory to the story like why are you translating this story um how do you do a good job when the grammar is so different? How do you translate? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, and yeah, what are these idiophone things, you know? Uh, uh, and why why are you talking about them? Uh, and in order to do any of that, I think I have to start with the people. Uh, so first, the storyteller. This man, Churuata, uh, also known by his Portuguese name, Cecilio Kachuyana, Yeah, he was introduced to me in 1994 as the last shaman of the Kakyana people. One of the guys I was working with collecting comparative stuff came in and said, hey, my uncle's the last shaman. You want to record some stuff? And I'm like, yeah. So they came in for a couple of days. I got eight hours of just them talking to each other. When you hear the recordings, you'll hear this rich, resonant, like, I get a kick-your-ass voice, that's Churuata, and you'll hear this guy who sounds like a little kid, Uh uh uh-huh, 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 that's his nephew, who was 40 years old at the time, but was thrilled to be in this position. Um, Anyway, he died in 95, before I I was going to go back and record a whole bunch more, I was just going in the summers, and I didn't get to, but over the course of three summers, mixed in with my other work, I Work to transcribe and understand this one twenty-seven minute story it took three summers. That tells you something about the complexity of starting on a new language.
0: Yeah.
1: Here's what I was hearing. <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I've been listening to this a lot lately. I've, I've been hearing this voice in my dreams. I <laughs> Thank you again to the Humanity Center for this. So, all these tribes, which you probably also never heard of, Kachuyana, Kahyana, Chikyana, Yoskuriana, they all speak the Wyrikyana language. It uh, used to be called Kachuyana. The other tribes said, hey, what about us? We speak it, too. And everyone agreed at a workshop on education that they were going to start calling it Werikiana. I'm still learning. So my quick history, uh, first, got to know what the Caribbean language family is. Then you can talk about the Werikiana. So this is a map of South America. You can see here all these little two-letter codes. Those represent different Caribbean. languages. The little uh, blue diamond there is uh, Werikiana, which was originally listed as Kachuyana or Kachuyana. Blowing that up a bit, I was saying I've worked with a lot of these languages. I started in the 80s in Venezuela with Panare and Yucpa. did seven languages during my my four years in Brazil, did another five languages during a, a six-year project that got extended a couple of years in Guyana. Uh, the last few years, I've been working with a colleague who I can't go to Venezuela now, but she's been working in Venezuela with the Yawarana language. And my dream is to spend the next 10 years which will take me well into retirement, working with Waitikiana, uh, in now spoken in that region with the uh, uh, pink parallelogram. So you need to know something about relationships. There's 23 languages. Hard to get a good classification of the languages for lots of reasons. Um, what I'll point out is there's a Venezuelan branch. That's the only branch of any size. Then there are three groups, Taranuan, Pecodian, and Parukotoan, which is of particular interest to me because the Warikiana language belongs to it. So, Wedikyana, Hishkariana, and Waiwai are very closely related. The others, not so much. Um, so, if you look at that geographically, you see Warikiana traditional territory in the parallelogram. Where they were at the time I worked with them is in the, the little diamond. You see the related languages, Hishkariana and Waiwai. And then you see the related, but more distantly, languages spoken off to the east and to the north. So that's kind of situating you. Now, before 68, those spaces look kind of close looking at this, but if you actually look at it from like Google Earth, same region, uh, they're a long ways apart and there's a lot of obstacles to communication between them. So communication between tribes was a major deal when it happened. So the Wetikiana speaking tribes were in that region, Waiwai and Ishkariana. Then you have the Akurio, Tirio, Wayana, and Apalai, quite a ways away, so you can see why those three languages are more similar to each other, and there wasn't historically a lot of contact. First, we know about the Waitikiana. Uh, An anthropologist in the early 20th century made contact, took some photos in 1940. Here are some of the people on the Kachuru River, so they were the Kachuyana that he met, and these are so the peoples that, as he described them. Now, the Cachuru River was blocked from exploitation by the Europeans and by later Brazilian society by a whole bunch of rapids and this major waterfall. Uh, There's a picture coming up on it. There's a picture from above. There's a picture from the 1940s. It's still big and bad. We had to portage around it. It took about two hours to walk around it. A pretty good obstacle that basically kept them protected so that they are not in the situation of all the tribes in Brazil that are now reachable by highway. You build a road, it's a new world. Uh, That new world has not yet arrived in this region, which is why I have the incredible good fortune that I have of the people to work with. That said, in the first half of the 1900s, with those initial contacts, the usual problem started with disease. They have no resistance to diseases that wiped out stretches of europe and africa and asia over centuries and so a whole bunch of people disappeared quickly they blamed it on shamanic warfare but the symptoms of shamanic warfare look a lot like influenza smallpox you know um so all the groups disappeared or merged with the Kachuyana at least according to this anthropologist and in the late 60s there were only 50 left two families went west to join the Hishkariana. However, that was not reported in the literature. I only learned that about five years ago. Um, the other 40 people who were reported to be the last 40 went downriver uh, to this frontier town, Obidos, where there was a Brazilian Air Force base. Brazilian Air Force uh, general said, yeah, we'll fly you up to visit. You know, you can go with the TDO there, your you your relatives in some sense like kind of like you know volya and i are relatives right uh you know uh, uh, english and russian are you know they're different branches of indo-european what's the problem you know uh so anyway the assumption was that the kachuyina would uh, assimilate in no time once they got there because 40 of them 900 tdo and everyone needed to intermarry because it was one family they couldn't marry each other and raise kids right that was not thinkable so Geographically situating this, there you are. Notice the ecosystem. Do you see something different about the jungle there? It's not a jungle, right? You're up at these headwaters of the rivers. You're in mountainous area, huge savanna. Different ecosystem, different way of interacting with the world. And then when you get closer, geez, there's this paved airstrip. There's military housing. There's military folks around guarding the border with Suriname check out the village. Here's a traditional village for you, all laid out on a grid uh, with concrete buildings. It's a really different world, right? So they're in a completely different thing. 94, this is when I first met them. I was doing this comparative project. I just wanted to know how many Caribbean languages were actually spoken. There's this issue of there were 20 names in the literature. So how many peoples might that be? You know, as you get a different name from each explorer coming from each direction, you might just be one group with 20 names. So that was my job. I went to and TDO as a part of my trips there because, um, well, I had a student working on TDO, and I wanted to keep an eye on him while he was getting started. And also because a whole bunch of people, it was sort of a crossroads for people from Suriname, French Guiana, Northern Brazil, thought, let's go check it out. And I was able to work with YY Akurio, Wayana, Apalai, and Werikiana. So it turned out to pay off. Um, so just to give you a sense again of geographic isolation why is it that these folks were still living fairly traditional lives and speaking their language uh well here's how you get there three days by boat from beleng to Santareng. Uh, that was my research crew uh, uh all three of whom now have doctorates one of whom is a professor of biology at oregon state now um we got onto a bush plane and flew north there's us loading the bush plane Notice the guitar. That was critical to intercultural relations and also my sanity. Um, and then we started flying. This is leaving the city. Notice the Amazon is this huge coffee and cream colored river. You see the blue water at the top of that picture. That would be the top of Joyce River coming in from the south. It's a blue water river. They run side by side for a while. And I love that picture. So I put it in every talk that involves airplanes. Um, so this is what you saw. Just Hours of unbroken jungle. You have to get down pretty low to even see the rivers because they just disappear from a height. And you can get down and you can see villages. This is what a village looks like in the more traditional setting. Uh, You can't just land a plane there, though. Um, So when you get to Misa Tidios, yeah, it's not a typical village scene. The Weticiana-speaking peoples were somewhat uh, still off kilter. And this was 25 years after they had come to live there. Uh So anyway, I was there to do my comparative work. I started in, but between sessions with other speakers, I said, how much can I learn about Vedic Because they're going to assimilate. They're going to disappear. This is my chance. Work with those elders. And so I was after comparative wordless. This is João Duvali, who is the nephew of Churuota. Uh, any other world, he would be a leading intellectual uh, he he is absolutely brilliant. So I I appreciated the chance to work with him. Um, people would sometimes bring their families to work, and then at night, because I was in a place with hydroelectric power, and I I was actually able to work at night and plug in my laptop. It was like I had never had a jungle experience quite like this. Well, it wasn't a jungle, right? Uh, and notice the walls around me. I had screens on the windows. I could I could sit without. I'm sorry. Um so back to the story Churuata came his nephew brought him in they spoke 8 hours he told stories he talked about the older ways of living talked about ceremonies and he talked about how different their homeland is he was basically agitating already and his nephew was one of the people that led the return to their current region they've all or over half of them have gone back now and that's where I work with them now. Um so once again, there's the man, Churuata. Um, So I'm working with the recordings. And in those three summers, I transcribed less than 30 minutes. But it wasn't just transcribing. You got to transcribe exactly as the guy says it. And people always want to editorialize. So you have to go listen again. Is that really what he said? And then you get another person and then After a while, you think you've got a pretty good approximation, but working off cassette tapes takes a while. Then you got to translate it into Portuguese. So you work with two or three people for each sentence to get a sense of what each of them might translate it as. And then you try to figure out the grammar. I I do. I mean, that's breathing in and out for me. Uh, That's what I can't believe they pay me to work on puzzles like this. Um, So Joan Duvalli, again, he got a pair of glasses on the second year that we were working. And uh, this is Onorio, who was the eldest of the family that went to Misao He passed early in COVID. Um, and there's me again late at night going, how do I do this? Let me listen to it again and type. Um, so 30 years later, 29 years later, I'm coming back to this story. Last August, I printed out all those transcriptions and translations, and I took the printouts to the seventh workshop on education. In the Wedekjiana language, and a whole bunch of young kids, and a couple of elders, and some really young kids. Well, these are the bilingual school teachers. They were ankle biters when I was there in the nineties. Now they're the village leaders. They're the they're the authorities. And then the the old people like me are the ones who uh, uh, sit there and pass out wisdom. So the kids were there fixing my transcriptions. Nobody argued with any of the translations, which convinces me they didn't understand it as well as they thought they did. Um, then, you know, uh, I, I've since been working more with three more people. This is Juvincino Pesirima. I work with him by uh, uh, Zoom, as you can see from the Zoom thing. Um And he was the youngest of the family that moved to uh, Misao Antidios, and he can understand it all. And he launches into stuff. I've started recording our sessions. I don't know when I'll get the spare time to read or to listen to him again or do something with him, but he just says so much. Lucas Kashuyana, who's now the vice president of the local indigenous association and someone who's trying to bring back and develop a writing system. And he's really good at that part of it. He does analysis and he does the writing. And Neji Kashuyana, who is the granddaughter of Churuata and the only woman with an advanced degree. She has a bachelor's degree in education. And then said, no, I wanna go back out and live in the village, fortunately right before COVID. Um, and so, you know, her mother in the background there is Churuwata's only offspring, his daughter. And so I had a chance to meet her. That's me waving at her going, oh, my God, fanboy, you're the daughter of that guy. Um, so here's the story. Some ignorant guy, because everyone was ignorant in the old days, right? Uh, nobody had culture. He caught a fish, and she turned into a beautiful woman, and lo and behold, she wanted to marry him, and he was like, yeah, and then she starts civilizing it, and she takes him beneath the water to this magical homeland where she came from, and they learn about all these things down there. He learns about agriculture and how to paint your body right and beadwork and clothes, and and turns out there was no sunrise or sunset before either, and he learned about that, and then They decide they're going to bring all the benefits of civilization to his people, and that's 27 minutes. So this is a very condensed version. Um, And so I started thinking about the translation. Um, When you read about translation theory, people are always saying there's this debate between folks that say it can't be done, and folks that say, sure, it can. You just have to be sufficiently diligent, persistent, perceptive, linguistically superior, um, like, okay fail, 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 but okay, I can be persistent. Um, anyway, these are the kinds of things that I was reading and getting depressed about translation, um, in part because the folks that say it can't be done have a point, far as I can tell. And all the languages that I speak, when I try to say, what do you just say? It's like, well, I can give you words that will get you in the neighborhood, but it means something different to him than those words are going to mean to you. And that's the issue of, sort of the purpose or the cultural translation. And as I was reading about that, I finally said, I got to quit reading about theory of translation and just do it Uh, because it's, it's extremely difficult to say it in such a way as to capture the flavor of the way it was said. And that's especially true for storytelling. And uh, even though everyone agrees equivalence isn't strictly possible, how close can you get for approximation? So, One of the issues we know about from linguistic studies in general, as the degree of overlap in experience increases, communication works better. As the degree of overlap in cultural experiences decreases, communication is increasingly fraught. You think you know what they mean by their words, but it turns out the experience that you're drawing on to to give meaning to the words are very different from the experiences that the speaker was drawing on to put the meaning in the words, as it were. And so Obviously, that's a factor in this text. Um, I'll say, as Annalisa said in her talk and her work in progress talk last week, uh, one of the joys of translations is it makes you take a deep dive. It is incredible how different things look after you've been on the inside of them for a few weeks. And that I really appreciate, including I've been hearing Chudwata's voice all around me for, for you know, a month now. Uh, but here was my big issue. The sound effect words really threw me off. So first off, I thought, all right, he's telling a story. He's just making up all these sounds. And as he's making them up, it's nice, but I don't have to worry about those. And then I discovered, well, turns out sound effect words wasn't all of it. So Kate Kelp-Stebbins did this nice talk about uh, from comic studies about graphic novels. And they have sound effects all written in. And translators, some of them don't even bother to translate them. And I said, I can do that. And then it turns out, well, damn, these sound effect words are conventionalized lexical items. That means everybody knows them. When you say them, that means something. It's not just some guy making up noises. And that meant I actually had to deal with the word class of idiophones uh, because it's it actually these are. Things that it's a cultural resource available to all speakers of the language that was simply unavailable to me, and I didn't even know to look for it. Right. Remember, this was 94 when I started on this, and I put it away for almost 30 years because, well, you can imagine. So, the question what is an idiophone? Well, it's a part of speech, and in general, parts of speech do particular jobs, nouns, person, place, or thing, verbs, action, event, or state nouns and verbs together in clauses who does what to whom right so you've got you've got your parts of speech you got the algebra of grammar but most native oral traditions actually outside of the european even in indic there are lots of idiophones it's the european traditions where writing has replaced storytelling it seems like that have very few idiophones so they're kind of like color commentary they depict rather than denote so denoting is, you know, it basically says, I'm going to give you a bunch of words. Now you build the image in your head that matches those words, depicting, I'm going to tell you what it looked like, and you're going to just see it. Doesn't always work that way, especially if you don't speak the language, but it does definitely make things more lively. So technical definitions include important statements like they have a special dramaturgic function, uh, which is color commentary. They vividly depict sensory experience, Right on. Uh, I asked Neji, "So, what do these words do?" I, she, I, I gave her a Portuguese language version of the talk I gave to the Fliss students a month ago, and she was like, "Oh, that's why you've been worried about this." No, he's just illustrating what's happening. It just illustrates the actions in the story. That's all that is. And I'm like, "Cool. <laughs> you know, depict, illustrate, same difference." Um, so when you start looking at idiophones as a technical term in an area of study, it's pretty recent. So expressives, mimetics, descriptive sound words, people have been talking about them, but they didn't actually become a thing until the last century, towards the end of the last century. So in 1935, a said, You know, they're a word class in Bantu, and then everyone ignored him for a long time. And then in 2001, a whole bunch of people said, no, we need a workshop on this. These are all over the world. Let's call them all by the same name. And so they had a volume on idiophones. I liked a couple of these titles, which, you know, the idiophone as a linguistic rebel. Are idiophones really as weird and extra systematic as linguists make them out to be? Short answer, yes. Um, There was another one entitled are idiophones translatable? To which their answer was yes, but then when you looked at the examples, no. Um, So again, I thought, okay, I got to stop looking at the literature. It's making me depressed. But I did at least go so far as to say, are these really idiophones? Well, how do you know one when you see one? They're words. They are a lexical class. They are marked. That is, as a lexical class, there is particular grammar that tells you they're different from all the other lexical classes. They depict rather than denoting. So there's something about this vividness to them. And speakers see that and tell you that. Their meanings are limited. They're the domain of sensory imagery. So it's about feelings, things you hear, things you see, things you experience. Uh, they're not just anything. You don't get at you don't you don't give a dissertation in idiophones. You tell a story about stuff that's really happening in idiophones. And They are an open lexical class. If they're really a part of the grammar, that means you can always add new ones. And there's, in principle, no limit to how big the class could be. The largest class described so far is Korean with 3,000. I'm guessing that's because there are a lot of Korean authors who went to the work of doing it. If there were a lot of Werikiana authors, I'd have a lot more of these than I do. So far, there aren't any. This should change. So it's key to say, I know people hear about idiophones and they think onomatopoeia because that's what we have in English. It's easy to remember. These these are iconic words. They sound like something that they're describing. So woof, woof, supposed to sound like a dog. Tick-tock, supposed to sound like a clock. Clang is supposed to be the sound of dropping something, maybe metallic, right? So you've got these sounds and you kind of, they depict something. They are like idiophones, but they're a subset of idiophones that are iconic. A lot of idiophones are not iconic. So there are idiophones for things that don't have any sounds. And I tried to find one in English. All I got was one from my cartoon watching days as a little kid. Someone's sitting there thinking hard, and then a light bulb appears above their head, and you hear ping. That's the sound of having an idea, right? So having an idea doesn't really have a sound, except the cartoons made it so that now you can say ping, and people think, oh, he had an idea. If you're old like me and watch those cartoons. Yeah. Um, so Dingemanset talks about this. Why do people always get confused between onomatopoeia and idiophones? It's it's because idiophones feel like they're iconic, even when they're not. Ping is not iconic of having an idea. It's iconic of having a light bulb go over your head in a cartoon where you hear the sound ping, which means you had an idea. So, Basically, without having benefit of these cartoons, idiophones are what happen in these languages where there are lots and lots of these sounds for things that happen that don't make noise, without the benefit of cartoons as an intermediary, and they just feel iconic somehow, even though they're not. And his claim is that's because they're so they, they vividly depict something happening. You hear the sound and you just see it, even though it's not the sound of the thing happening. So, for instance, You can have kinds of movement. You can have common actions. These are all idiophones from this one story. Walk, sit, swim, writhe, float, enter, exit, bail a canoe, hit, drag, burn, be surprised, be afraid, wonder, or to express them, to cry, shout, or laugh. Uh, weather, different kinds of rain, wind, thunder, lightning, passage of time. There's a sound for the sunrise and a sound for the sunset. There's a sound for a few hours passing. There's a sound for days passing. There's a sound for weeks passing. And those are all used um, phases. There's a sound for starting to do something and a sound for stopping and a sound for stopping because you're done because you actually finished it. Right. Um, there's also interpersonal communications. Maybe we should call these interjections. And there's animal noises, lots of them. The names for over half the birds are the sounds they make, you know, like chickadee in English, right? Chickadee. Dee, dee. Uh, so, anyway, there are people who write their entire articles just sorting through the categories of meaning in idiophones. I started to go down that rabbit hole and then said, wait, now that wasn't part of what I said I was going to do. Uh, so, You need to hear some of these. What's the sound of finishing something? Four different things got finished. I stole the tarat from each place. The sound of finishing something can be very quiet, almost inaudible, right? Just in passing, he finished, right? What's the sound of... A guy getting clothes tied on him for the very first time. They tied a whole bunch of noisemakers on him as he was learning how to decorate himself properly. Um, the sound of planting for the first time when you never had agriculture before. They were done. The sound of grabbing something. A couple different grabs happened here. You can guess what okay. he pulled out. Okay, the sound of someone showing up, arrival and departure. Okay. Okay. Okay.
2: Okay. Okay. Entering. So, as you came in the door,
1: a snake that's holding all of these gifts for the people. Uh, and it's just in pain because there's such a heavy load. <laughs> Scaring the hell out of the people, of course. Uh, but hey, they had to go get their stuff somehow. Uh, fish swimming by while you're underwater and you can breathe because it's magical. Fish can also approach you and check you out. <laughs> Now, you hear that, you know, he's making this shit up.
0: You know he's just
1: making it up. No. Everyone heard those, ah, that's this, you know, chape, uh, chape, chape, that's the sound of a piranha swimming. You know, the other two, I don't know what the fish was, but everyone agreed when they heard the chape, oh, it's a piranha swimming. It's like, <laughs> what do you do? Stick your head underwater where there's piranhas and listen? I mean, come on. So, anyway, point being, they're not just onomatopoeia. So the grammar. What makes them a marked word class? They don't take prefixes or suffix. They, they don't show up in regular words. They get reduplicated a whole bunch of the time. Uh, and they get pronounced with strange intonation. That's what I'm going to focus on here. Uh, and these other things are all things. This could go on for three hours or more. Um, and I would have fun. <laughs> um, but I want you to hear some of this. You've already heard some of it. you heard that uh, um, Boy, you know, I, he uses his voice as he's saying these things. So here's some more examples of how you know that it's not just the letters on the page, but it's actually how you say them.
2: <laughs>
1: so I just translated the other stuff, but you hear that ha ha every time. <laughs> can't even do it. He can get his voice higher than I can. Um, so, now, now when I first had this written down, I just had written down, ho mo I didn't even know there was an idiophone there, and then I'm listening later going, wait a minute. That sounds, and sure enough, you can say ho ho or ha ha, but it's that tone of voice that tells you I'm mocking, I'm doing mocking laughter here, and sure enough, it worked. Uh, how about that one when you're surprised what do you say i actually didn't realize this my wife was harassing me the other day because i was i'm so excited by hood and she said when i first met you i thought you were weird because every time you were surprised you said yeah (laughs) and i realized i learned that in nepal because that was their idiophone for something surprising that i'm just expressing not a bad surprise well I mean, it's not a bad surprise to find a beautiful woman in your canoe where there was just a dying fish before,
2: right?
1: So that was just three idiophones as a sentence, basically. They went in to this magic portal Good. he was surprised and they they exited uh, on the top of the water um, so there. Yeah. i think it's safe to say that a rising intonation contour is characteristic of the sound of surprise and i don't know how to write that and i sure as hell don't know how to translate it all right so there are other sounds of surprise but <laughs> that's, that's how I, oh, that's the disgusted surprise.
2: Just here's what, I, well, damn, I forgot where
1: I was in the story. You know? um, so you just hear Gay, ya. <laughs> um, So different sounds of surprise come with different voice qualities, different melodic uh, patterns. Um, how about <laughs> Fear. Would you, would you do fear like
0: this? Yeah,
1: yeah so there's, I'm about to sit on a giant anaconda. <laughs> I'm sitting on a, on a on a caiman right now. <laughs> yaka. Yaka, you're not going to bite me, right? Yaka, I'm on yaka. a giant yaka. anaconda. Yaka, the sun is setting. I'm about to die. <laughs> <laughs> so just, yaku, yaka. It's, it's not even like, where's the excitement? Yeah. 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 This is a stoic response to, to hardship. Now, there are a couple that are, you can believe in.
0: Yeah.
1: He almost did die that time. He, he was meeting his father-in-law for the first time. It was a giant anaconda. <laughs> yeah, so... Let's get technical for a minute. That's why I got so into this. It was like, it's everywhere. It's throughout. How do I deal with this? I said, well, I know what I can do. I can go look at how other Caribbean languages do it. And part of my job was to get lists of idiophones. So I gathered these resources, which I'm not going to talk about now. Uh, Turned out, I will highlight one thing. There was a master's thesis done on idiophones in YY that I learned about literally last week. Uh, So... That was a lot of fun. I suddenly worked a lot of new material into my talk. Um, uh, But pointing out here that the yellow line above that represents the closely related languages, below that not, but the green box represents languages that have been in contact in the last hundred years at least. Um, So, as you look at, how many idiophones did we find for each one? Between 100 and 200, except for these two at the bottom. Very few for them. probably means something. I'm not sure. Maybe it means we talked to the wrong storytellers, but um, it, it still is interesting. Um, and now we can ask that historical question. Can we reconstruct idiophones? So the two principles for reconstruction is you have cognates, which are words that descend from a common origin. They have form and meaning that are too similar to be a coincidence. And these cognates contain sound changes. So you identify this proto sound turned into this range of sounds in the daughter languages. And those are called correspondences. So you go looking for those. So Latin to English, pater, father. The P corresponds to F. The T corresponds to th. And this is a really convenient example, but there are hundreds of these that, that give you the Germanic language family where p became f and t became th, etc. You can do this in carabin. The cognates are easy for this bunch of languages I was looking at. Found the word for breast. It's practically the same word all the way across. The word for ear has some nice correspondences. though pana is hana is fana. So the pa, fa, ha historical change has given rise to an interesting correspondence. This is the kind of stuff you look for to say, is that cognate? Well, I don't know. If it's got a P in this language, it better have an H in that one. So that's kind of how you know you got cognates. I got another page of these. They're easy to find: nouns, verbs, adverbs. No problem. There are no adjectives, so that's easy too. Um, but when I started doing idiophones, it's like, okay, it's not working out so well, right? Uh, well, there's sort of a kuru in all of these, but kuruk, kuruk, kuruk. I don't know. Well, there's sort of a kuru, but sometimes it's a kuruk and sometimes it's a kurun. And sometimes it's a kuro. It's kind of, there's something there. And there's a ku at the start of all the swallows. And and kuda is also there in grab, kind of like tie on. And, oh, look, in don, there's sa, san, and sa for three of them. And in uh, arrive, there's a pore and two of them. And you start going, you know what? This isn't working out so well. <laughs> These are my best examples. After I went through hundreds of idiophones, I have six Not very good
2: examples.
1: (laughs) There are one more. It's a not very good example. And the rest are all like think, surprise, lightning, and finish where there's nothing. Nothing. And so, short version of the conclusion. Yeah, I was wrong. They were right. You can't reconstruct the idiophones, at least in caravan. I haven't given up, but I'd have to do a lot more work to have a chance. And maybe it would be a lot more work that wouldn't work out. Yeah, there's worse fates. You could not have work. Um, Anyway, there's also talk about contact being the way these things spread. That's something I would love to explore in future work. Um, So, another comparative question came up, though, because I'm looking at all these idiophones and I'm saying, why didn't they bug me in the languages before? Well, one reason they didn't bug me is because the different languages use them differently, and the languages that I worked on were on the low end of idiophone usage. So first. When you just looked at our collections of texts, how many idiophones did I see get used, deployed in the text? Not how many do they have, but how dense are they in a text? And so, you know, why, why, a 1,000 to 2,000 to 2,500. Tiro and Apalai, 1,300, Apalai, up to 3,000. So there's a lot, they're using them. But then I had to say, well, actually, that could be a function of how many words you have, because look, 239 idiophones in Wedekiana. Um, I had a total of 27 minutes of text. These others, we had hours of text. So maybe there's, maybe it's not a fair comparison. So let's say how many words are in all the text and then we'll get a comparison. Just to get a sense, how often do they really use these things? Turns out Hisishkiriyana, YY, and Wedekiana. Oh, you 12 know, and a half percent, you might say, of the words in their text are idiophones. Like, they're using sound effect words more often than 1 in 10 words. And it's not just Wettigiana. So it's not just this one weird language I work with. That was interesting to discover. Uh, You look at these others, there's a group that have something like somewhere between, say, 2 and 5 percent. Less than half, but still, they're appreciable. Guess which languages I worked with, Wayana and Akawayo, you know, that I was doing this original work with. And so I said, okay, that makes sense. And then Karitnya, another language I worked with, 1%, like one word in a hundred is an idiophone, right? That's not a lot of functional load. You're not doing a lot with idiophones if you don't use them that, if they're that rare. And then there's Apalais, it's like 2,900 idiophones in one collection of texts. I don't have a count of words. I guess I could sit there with a pencil, but I'd like to figure out how to make it computer countable so that I wouldn't have to do it. So I can't say what the percentage is there. So I went for another thing, because I did have these broken down in clauses in a bunch of these, and that allows me to look at the Apalai. So in Hishkariana and Wedikiana, we have, you know, about, what? There is 0.4, roughly 0.4 idiophones per clause, which means every two and a half clauses, you have an idiophone. Uh, and in these other ones, it's like every, you know, what, a toy, every five clauses, you have an idiophone. And then in Karitnya, yeah, every hundred clauses, you have an idiophone. Uh, but in Apalai, look at that. You have more than one idiophone per clause. I really need to get access to the recordings <laughs> that that one is based on because I, I just, I got to know. How, how do they have two and a half times as much as Wedekiana? that freaked me out? And you know, yeah, we'll see. Anyway, first conclusion there's four different levels of idiophone density. Uh, the one I'm interested in is the one with Werekyana, of course, which has high idiophone density. And I'd like to explain it with comparison to the low and medium idiophone density languages I'd worked with before. Why is it? Um, and to do that, you really need to look at how they get used. And so here's a part of the story where the guy's first learning about the sunset. He had never seen a sunset before. You know, what's going on?
0: That's
1: the sound of the sun setting by the
0: way. That's him
1: crying. She's telling him, shush up. Wait a while. still not asleep. He was still crying.
0: A few hours passed. Spaniel, muy? No, no, no. Español y mire. Está presto, 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 presto. Pugas
2: por aquí. Pum. Pum, pum, pum. Bueno, aquí se suele alcazar. Nada. Pum, dos hijos. Que me viene nadie. Pum, pum, no
1: now if you look at that all those bolded ones were idiophones so you can see there were they were just shot throughout there so every emotional reaction in that stretch was an idiophone it never I did say well he was crying but the sound of fear the sound of oh thank God right the bird song was an idiophone time passing he didn't just say and after a while it just time passes right um, but then also there are patches where the idiophones carry it. <laughs> they were saying "pusak pusak" meant they were jumping from the water. <laughs> On land, "sorep" his arrow. He pulled out his arrow, but it doesn't say he pulled out his arrow. It just says "sorep." You have to know what that's going to mean. Oh. Sorry, <laughs> <right>. and then. <laughs> You know, he shoots and hits the rah-rah. Uh Again, this is the action carried forward. There is no denotation. There's only depiction. Uh, there's an example of a shot from the 1940s of a guy fishing with a bow and arrow. There's an example of a paku fish being caught. It uh, wasn't arrowed in this case, but caught on a hook. Um, so, yeah, the big deal here is there's no denotation. Events are denoted by verbs. They got prefixes that tell you who does what to whom. They got suffixes telling you when and how it's done. Idiophones, they got nothing. They're just, there's the sound. And that means your listeners have a different job. They're not getting to follow the algebra of the grammar to know everything that they need to know. They have to fill in a lot of detail. They got to kind of guess who the subject was and guess who the object was of an event of shooting. It's not hard guy with the bow is the one doing the shooting. The fish is the one getting hit. But you still have to do that work. It's not explicit in the grammar. Um, So my current explanation is, in the languages I worked on before, idiophones really were just color commentary. Like these. So, disappear. She would disappear. Depart. She would go again. Arrive. She would come again. Uh, He beat it wham! Yep. Basically, all of these are repetitions. you got a sentence that denotes, and then a sound effect, your idiophone that just kind of depicts. So you get a double whammy. That's what I was expecting. And that's why I was looking at Wedi going, what the hell's going on here? And it's because uh, he just tells the story. So he doesn't describe things, he just He just depicts directly, and that stands in for what we in the European tradition would expect as a denotation. So, if you listen,
2: Uh these are just words, right? He's Uh
1: describing. Uh Mm -hmm. They were jumping. He saw it. Mm -hmm. He dragged his canoe.
2: You see what's happening,
1: right? And now, how do we get those ten idiophones into a translation? The first option I thought of was, I'm just going to double translate every line. When it gets to that, I'm just going to put them, we're going to be having a story and suddenly there's going to be two lines, with what he actually said, followed by what that means, so that you have to work through what they're doing to each other with this. Several people commented on how much they didn't like seeing it that way. It's not good for reading. So I said, okay, fine, we'll go with a second option. We'll go for, we'll treat it as if it were the way the other caravan languages do it. They were jumping from the water. Pusak, pusak. He saw it. Kururu, he dragged his canoe onto the shore. And on land, sorep, he pulled out an arrow. Koro, koro, he walked a bit. And topo, he arrived at the river's edge and released the arrow and poros, hit a raw raw fish. Book it floated to the surface, blah, blah, blah. Okay? So that was, it works if you read it out loud. On the page, you got to do something to make those words a different color, or make them jump out or something. And then my favorite was the one that I got in doing an interview with uh, October, who said, "What well, you could do a graphic novel. And he did. And like,
0: damn!
1: up, up. I showed this to the three people on the internet. Uh, um, Wednesday morning, and they're all like, can you get him to do some more? Can he, like, do the rest of the story? And I'm like, I think he's got other things to do, but we can talk about it. But more to the point, can we take a bunch of drawing materials down there and get someone to just say, here, go for it. Get your students to illustrate these stories. Get them to understand the story from the inside the way I had to, because they don't speak the language anymore. So, anyway, in conclusion... I started off with the question, is all this idiophone usage, is this like historical change? Like just one group of the languages just started doing it more? Mm-hmm. I've come to the conclusion that is partly the truth. Mm-hmm. Is it an effect of genre? Maybe this particular kind of story gets more of them than other stories. That one I don't think so, because I overheard people telling stories to each other about hunting trips, and they had a lot of them, right? But then, the, is this like a master storyteller laying it on thick? Mm-hmm. I think yes. But I can't prove that, but what makes me think that, in part, is that the Apalachee difference. There's two sets of texts. One of those was a master storyteller laying it on so thick there was more than one idiophone per sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout an entire set of uh, hundreds, oh, you know, over 2,000 clauses, over 2,000 sentences. So that's got to be individual variation there. Because the other Apalachee corpus was just like Wayana, like the languages that I knew that were normal. The third possibility, well, no. how do you answer this? you got to get in there and do a documentation project. So you got to get a lot of recordings of a lot of storytellers and a lot of genres and do the hard work of transcribing them and seeing what's there. So last August, I had a workshop on the Wediciana language. All these folks agreed that they wanted to do a documentation project. So the Leaders of the speech community brainstormed about it. This is the uh, Juvencino up there explaining to them kind of what we had all brainstormed together, but putting it into the other two languages of the people there. And here they are already starting in. They're starting to take recordings. they got tripods for cell phones, remote microphones to get high-quality uh, sound. They're, they're ready. Uh, we already started breaking down words into the you know explicit morphemes. Um, and this winter, I submitted a proposal to NSF, I, I hope they do it so we can start work when my sabbatical starts in January. But in the meantime, I still get to work with these fine folks every weekend, and that is sweet. Um, so my final thoughts, it's a real blast to work with languages that whose grammar you know nothing about because you get surprised by things like idiophones. Um, it's also... A little thing like any phones, I can do that in ten weeks. Well, shit. Um, Yeah, I realize there are people that have made careers out of this and I'm not going to be one of them. Um, uh, Because what really matters now is I'm finally coming back to work with these people after thirty years I'm making a commitment. We're going to do a full project with all of them. This is what they want to help keep their languages vital. They want a full corpus of recordings that they can download on their cell phones in the villages, because they have internet in the villages now. Um, uh, they want a grammar. They want a dictionary. And that's where I'm going to be going for the next 10 years. But I'm still intensely grateful that I had a chance to take this 10 weeks, because, wow, I learned a lot. <laughs> it shorter. But... Uh, questions just became expansive. <laughs> well, that's already happening. The trick here mm. is that um, the usual modes of cultural transmission have been broken. Mm-hmm. You know, the the missionary activity led to a direct. Everybody stopped working with the shamans because you know they mm-hmm. represented the wrong side mm-hmm. in, in this particular uh, spiritual cultural uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, at that point, many of the stories. The shamans not only contained the knowledge of the pharmacopoeia from the jungle, but they also had most of the traditional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And these stories are in fact in competition with other creation stories that were introduced by the missionaries. And so it is the case that we need these recordings now because then other kids can listen to them and learn them again via a modified version of traditional transmission. Mm -hmm. It's a new world. It used to be the only way to retain Someone's words was to write them, mm-hmm. and that's why this sense of the permanence and stability of writing is so powerful. Mm. But now we do have other means, mm-hmm. and if we can pair the writing always with something auditory or oral, I think we'll have a lot more powerful combination. Mm-hmm. But it is real that they want the writing as well. I would like to think of it not as having to choose between them, mm-hmm. but as both and. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really hoping we can we can make it additive rather than replaceive. And it is the case that, of course, the, the new spiritual traditions are replacive. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm hoping that our work can be a secular alternative.
0: Would that preserve another shaman or create another shaman?
1: That's not my call. <laughs> 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 uh, but let's say if another one comes, I'll work with him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a really hard... I that, It's dangerous in that people ask me, well, what do you want to do? And I keep saying, well, that's not the right question. Mm -hmm. It's what can I do to help them do what they want to do? And that's even not quite the right framing because them is never... Have you ever met a community that agreed on everything (laughs) or or on anything? So there are certainly different groups that have really different takes and uh, obviously I'm working with the people that want to work with me and I do wonder what can I offer to the folks that think maybe that's not the right thing and so that's also a part of what I have to think about it's it's really complicated there are a lot of people who have welcomed the the you know the missionary activities they have assimilated into some version of that new spiritual culture and I don't want to tell them well that was an awful mistake you know uh but I also don't want to abandon those who have not adopted that tradition and who do want to preserve these things. I think there's there should be modern value to this work, not just archival value. And at the very least, you got to have something to read. Paulo Freire said it right. If you're going to be literate, you got to have something to read. Here you go. We got something for you to read. <laughs> and uh, that will be in, you know. Uh, in addition to the works that are being produced right now by the uh, Summer Institute of Linguistics folks. They're translating Bible stories and offering it to the schools as literacy materials. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, well, you know, that's fine. Here, there's something else you can also read. Mm-hmm. And if you want to, you all want to get the tools to make up all your own stuff, I'm here to work with you for the next ten years, and now that we can do it by Internet, mm-hmm. maybe more. So it is... Uh, Sorry, you you opened a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of doors with oh, that yes. with that comment of on sort of cultural trends. I forgot Mission. the word. Yeah, yeah. transition. Yeah. It's there's a lot there.
0: Can you explain your process of you? You had a list of I don't know ten or fifteen languages. That, yeah, I mean, and you say you work with these language. You don't do you? learn all of them? or How does that work?
1: I have not when become you're... a speaker. I've, I got to be a partial speaker of Wayana, and I'm starting now on mm-hmm.
2: Uh
1: With the others, it was all via translation. Okay. So the idea is usually you record stories, and then you transcribe, and then get translations. Okay. And so you can work with monolingual folks on the transcription part, but obviously translations, you need someone that speaks a contact language. Okay. It was funny when I started, because my Spanish was abysmal, and so was theirs. And so we were there talking to each other, and abysmal Spanish, you know, for my work in Venezuela. Uh, I remember I, I was saying, you yeah, this is what this translates as, is a talk in, in a Spanish-speaking country, and people looked at me like, that's not Spanish you just gave us. I don't know how to translate that. I said, well, here's what he meant. And they're like, well, how do you know? <laughs> you don't speak Spanish so good either. And I said, well, that's how I know. We both speak Spanish badly. So I just knew that was what that meant.
2: <laughs>
0: so are there organizations who, who document these different languages, you know, when you say you get a translation of them. Oh, no, the
1: documentation, we're the ones doing that. Okay. Uh, that it, it is academics that are doing documentation. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, basically we train people. You, you get a doctorate in, in sort of descriptive linguistics, and mm-hmm. it takes a number of years, and there's a whole workflow that you have to go through. But the, what I was doing with those different languages, I was doing comparative work. So I didn't try to do that with every language. I worked on texts with... Panare, Akawayo, uh, Wayana, and Wedikyana only. The others, I just collected words and, and you know, short sentences, things that I knew I needed in order to describe how the, uh, so how the words had descended from the, from the parent language, from the reconstructed proto-language. So I just reconstructed things that I knew existed in half a dozen languages. All right, let me look for it in all the new languages I meet. So those were, like in two weeks, I could get what I needed. Which I did, which sounds very exploitative, which it was. Um,
0: <laughs> so let me pause for, for a moment. It's now 1 o'clock. If people have to leave, please feel free to do so. But if Spike is willing to continue taking questions, you're welcome to stay in talk. And thanks, thank him again. <laughs>
1: but yeah, I can stay if people do want to keep
0: asking questions. I do sort of wonder about, like, when you say they understand what these things mean. Is that because they're familiar with the story, or they've heard this before? Are they thinking of the context in which it's used in the story? Or, I mean, are these things, like, used broadly by people? Um, when do we talk about Piranus Right. Usually?
1: Well, it is clearly the case that... I, I was just presenting these words to people out of context. Okay. Like, I made lists of them in one of our workshops. and mm-hmm. and. They started coming up with other ones out of context, so they're just out there. But they have fairly broad meanings. And so like the sound um, toro, it could be the sound of dropping someone into something on a boat, it could be the sound of dropping something on the ground, it could be the sound of putting something into a bag. And so when you just say toro out of context, you don't know which one it is. But in the story, and part of this is I think they know the story, so he doesn't have to say into a bag or into the canoe, but other times he actually says it, toro, toro, into the canoe. Mm-hmm. You know, toro, his bag. Right. And so you know that, let's say, the detail comes in context in the story, mm-hmm. but the general concept, which can have a lot, and these are kind of broad things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, they, they aren't as specific as a standard mm-hmm. noun or a verb. Yeah. Um, so you definitely need the context to get the precise image.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? I would... I don't know how to do the study, but I would love to know what image comes up in people's minds when you just give them a word out of context. Mm-hmm. Like in the story, I know what image comes up because they talk about it. Mm-hmm. But just totally out of context. What do you see when I say... Kachuk, kachuk, uh-huh. You know, and that should be the sound of bailing out a canoe, but are you are you in the front or the back of the canoe? Is the canoe leaking? Is it just a little bit? Did, did you like hit a wave?
0: What, mm-hmm.
1: I just, I wonder what the kind of prototype bailing sound images I if it's an study there. Ah oh. <laughs> you know they did decent at understanding Spanish. Yeah. Uh if you'd like to come down sometime we can talk about <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Put together yeah. such a study. Do we have portable
0: eye tracking now? Like you just do it on we a laptop, it. right? Well yes, I mean it's possible. It's uh-huh. well, I don't have it. well
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> we should talk. Dunny did you start?
2: there was fifty left at some point and then like about eight of them moved somewhere else and then you were working with like the remains of the last forty. Right. So have there been any efforts to contact or trace any of the eight that you would do and what would their kind of how do you think that data might affect the idiophones? If that they've changed over time, if there's been any storytelling in remains like
1: these are morning. those people. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. They they these workshops are what've been blowing my mind. The last I, I started doing them in twenty fourteen when they were working on a writing system. And we've gotten into grammar and now documentation. The last two workshops, there were members from these tribes that came. And turns out they still one of the big things that, that has been messing with us and trying to come up with a good writing system is the people, the elders who grew up speaking Wedickyana as their first language in their traditional territory, have a particular way of talking that is really distinctive. I can come up with a writing system, no problem. All the kids that were born of the TDO Wedekyana speaking marriages. Tdo is their first language. Portuguese is their second language. (laughs) Wediciana, yeah, you know, I understand it pretty well. I could get it back if I needed to. That kind of thing, right? So they speak Wediciana with a distinct Tdo accent. They do not pronounce things like their elders. And that has given us issues because they don't pronounce all the distinctions that matter for telling words apart. And so we've been trying to decide, do we want our writing system to reflect the majority of speakers, which the clear majority... Sound like T.D.O. speaking Wedekiana Or do we want it to sound like the elders? Well, now suddenly there's a group of like 60 people that was that original eight coming back from Hishkaryana territory. They all sound like the elders, including like a teenager. This this teenage kid. This guy right here with the pen in his hand. He's like 19, and he sounds just like the elders. I'm like, okay. Uh, now the next job, I say this sounds like the elders. That's me. I'm not even a speaker, Right. For the purposes of my writing system, he sounds just like the elders. The next thing is we got to document this and say, maybe they've been influenced to sound more like Hishkariana and YY, which are much more closely related. That'd be like someone, you know, saying I speak English with a Russian accent if I was raised by Russian parents. And, you know, whereas if I were raised by someone, you know, Dutch, which is so much closer to English, then it might work... We need to find out. Maybe their pronunciation has also been altered, but we won't know until we do a documentation and get a really fine-grained analysis. And, of course, the people who are doing those transcriptions, we plan to have a team of Wetikyana researchers who will actually get salaries for three years to transcribe texts and notice stuff like this, to be like, so what do you notice? And then I'll try to confirm it with instrumental studies of phonetics. But I'm if you did an instrumental study, it would take the rest of my next lifetime and this lifetime just to get through half of the text, much less to see if I could find anything. you got to go with the people that know and then just try <laughs> to test their claims against some something that can be measured independently of their perceptions. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure they're different, I, I think. Just like I was sure I could reconstruct idiophones.
0: That's why it's science. It's the science
1: part. The humanities part is where all the the wind in the sails the emotional part the passion comes from that but but the the being wrong that's the science part
0: <laughs> i have another
2: question if that's okay so it seemed like there's a bit of a difference but i don't know if it's just because i'm not familiar with the language but when he was like this that you showed us saying the sound effects a lot of them were like whispered or very, mm-hmm. like subdued mm-hmm. and when you were um repeating them to us there was more like emotions you would see like American comic books, or something. How is that, is that common in their languages? Is, is a lot of the like, <coughs> sound effects, but idiophones, is it more based on the like, knowledge of them and the context in the background versus how they sound in the story themselves? Um,
1: well, first, my pronunciation was partly driven <coughs> by wanting everyone to hear him because yeah. he was whispering. Yeah. But mm-hmm. second, that's how they are in the other Caribbean languages I've worked on. It's this sound effect sentence, sound effect sentence, um, so they stand out. And most story or most literature on idiophones, the technical literature says they are distinguished in some way by intonation, meaning they stand out. He's breaking all the rules. He's also breaking all the rules, and it's not just color commentary. He's telling the story with idiophones. Yeah. So I, the the that's the long answer. The short answer is I don't know. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how other storytellers use them. I'm guessing you know, not every storyteller gets real quiet and deep and then gets loud and dramatic. Some storytellers just roll along like this and tell their story and that's all there is to it. Uh, I think he's one of those great storytellers in addition, in addition to everything else he uses his voice as, a, as an instrument mm-hmm. and I don't think all storytellers do in this culture. I, I will know more. I would hope three years from now.
0: Yeah. I have a related question, and yeah. that is, does idiophone density or frequency of usage vary as per audience being addressed? In other words, the same story is told five times to five different audiences of varying size or composition. Mm-hmm. Does the idiophone usage increase or alter or decrease as to the different audience being addressed? It's untested. Mm.
1: I like the idea, I think it's a good hypothesis that there would be a difference. (laughs) Um, What you're describing is the reason that I am never present during a recording, because I am trying to learn a little bit, and I discovered early on that if I'm actually in the room, they talk baby talk, basically. They talk foreigner talk. Uh, They they don't use their full repertoire, and they actually use wrong grammar, because they know that I understand verb roots, and so they'll just say verb roots. So I actually leave the room, because I know that when I'm in the audience, if they are showing solidarity with me they want to make it so I can understand it which means it's not what I want to record mm. it's the opposite of what I want to record mm. so I I think it would be fascinating to see if we could do that it would have to be a natural experiment mm-hmm. I think if you set that up mm-hmm. there'd be no say it's hard for me to imagine somebody having to tell the story five times in a short period of time right. where you're recording all of them yeah. I that in itself would alter the telling
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um, I'll bet I'll bet we could get that natural experiment if we can get a longitudinal... Like, we're gonna, we're hoping this study will go on for three years. We're going to have 40 different people out there with cell phones and microphones recording stuff. If it could happen that you could catch the same person telling the same story three different years and you have a record of who was in the audience, it would be interesting to see. Yeah. You know? Because I'll bet it makes a difference. If you know there's a couple of old... Couple of old ones that know all those words, and you want to impress them. I bet you're going to pull out all the stops. Yeah. <laughs> and it is interesting. This story here. I mean, they recorded for eight hours. This is side four A. So it's mm. it's three to three and a half hours. Mm. You know, they completed three hours. So. The guy just said, that's the half you have to do. And I had no idea why. I start wondering, you know, maybe that's when he finally relaxed. Because mm-hmm. this was not a natural setting for storytelling, right? Sitting at a table you know, in a block house with screens on the windows. And we had to close the, the shutters because all the kids were coming in. Ooh, what's he doing? What's going on in there? And it's like, yeah, we're recording quick. <laughs> um, so it was a weird setting. And I can imagine it took the guy three hours to loosen up and really start getting into it. Uh, And that's an important... uh, Bill LeBau, a social linguist, has talked about the importance of what he calls the audience's effect in coercing uh, the vernacular, the most natural. Or Like, if you've got a bunch of people you talk to all the time, that's what you're going to use. You're going to use the language with them that you use all the time. Whereas if there's one weird person in the mix, things are... Do you do you play to the person who doesn't belong to your group? And generally, what happens, he claims, is that the preponderance, the critical mass of the people that you always talk to, they're going to say you're talking weird. So you just talk to them the way you always talk. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing a lot. Uh, I may never know, but if I if I play my cards right before I die, there will be someone from this group studying linguistics. At a university level somewhere, maybe <laughs> they will be interested in that question too, and we'll learn something about it. But this is where you need native speakers to become the scholars. That was the one talk about. Um, um, oh God, now I'm seeing his face, and I can't, I can't get his name. the The famous uh, philosopher from the '60s who who died after going to San Francisco. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, anyway. Uh. Uh, the, the, at that particular talk, we, we the issue did come up of how to, how to deal with education. You know, how much are you how much are you shaping people's minds versus just offering them tools?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: how much do you require someone to adopt a particular cultural worldview world before they can use the tools that you have available? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I'm concerned about with training people in linguistics. I, I did train this one Akawai woman, Desiree, all the way to a PhD, and... Near the end, she just looked at me and she said, you do understand this is all bullshit. I'm like, what is <laughs> you and she said, look, I'll play the game, but you're taking my language, my real, living, breathing language, and you're killing it, putting it in black marks on a page, cutting it up, putting it into boxes, and you think that's the language. And it's like, it's so it's related to the language. It's, it's, it's a window on the language. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that anyone I work with will have her internal compass uh, in future work. Unfortunately, I didn't get to keep working with her after she got her doctorate because within a year of going back to Guyana, she was elected to the parliament. Then she was named Minister of Education, and then we only had time for like two phone calls a year. And then she had a fatal car accident. And it was like... So... Uh, this is my my dream is to get someone from this group. There are several candidates. There are these brilliant people out there who simply don't have access to Western education right now, mm-hmm. and they would have to sacrifice a lot to get it. Neji, for example, uh, the woman who's standing in that picture holding the baby, she's got her degree. She was third when there were only two openings. She was third in the concurso, the competition for admission to the master's program. And, and so she didn't go into the master's program. She went back out to the jungle, and I was talking to her the other day. So what do you think about going back? She's like, no, nah, I'm really happy out here. But happiness isn't, oh, fuck. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, I'm waiting for someone who will both love being out there, love being in the traditional world, and also be willing to take enough time away from that love to become an academic both ends, not either or. And that's my fear is that education tends to insist on replacing the worldview uh, the traditional worldview with the Western educated worldview. And I would like to find a way to to work with people that don't have that vision of it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. But that
0: says we can we can do it all. And I can drink. Any other questions for Spike? Yeah, go cool. Yeah, you mentioned the Summer Institute of Linguistics Yes. Yeah. also creating written language. Yes. How much agreement or disagreement is there with them and the group that you're working with? And are there interesting politics going on with that? Um, there are interesting politics. Uh, the first short answer
1: to your question, there are no differences because the missionaries came to our first workshop and uh, uh, many of the people who are here actually belong to the missionary group. So the man in the yellow shirt with the glasses looking down at the elder there, he is a pastor in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, And he's willing to to hold both systems in his head simultaneously, which I really appreciate. One of my great sadnesses is that João Duvali, the guy who brought Chiruata to to work with me, he's become a pastor and he's decided that there's only one way. And he's not willing to work anymore with this traditional stuff. Mm -hmm. So we've lost that Mm -hmm. intellect. For the for the common cause, um, the particular NGO that I work with, non governmental organization, uh, they are violently opposed to missionary work in all of its forms, and so uh, while I don't have violence in my opposition, I like to say I I'm always happy to provide a secular alternative, and I'm not happy to contribute to the to the missionary work, uh, but I'm not out there trying to sabotage missionary work. I just I, I think that I'd rather do something different, and uh, uh, the group I work with is willing to accept me conditionally on on those terms, <laughs> even though I don't actually attack the missionary work like they do. But what that means is we do have weird politics every time these things happen. The very first meeting was called by this non-governmental organization, and they were horrified that the missionaries attended. And the third meeting was held in one of the villages where the missionaries live, and they attended again, and. There were all kinds of tensions crackling through the air the whole time because they were wishing the missionaries would just go away. And I I talked to the missionaries. I actually stayed in the missionary house. They said, you guys can speak English together because he originally uh, was raised biculturally, uh, both Brazilian and, and uh, American parents. Well, one parent American, one Brazilian. And so, you know, I... I am in communication with the missionaries, and we're doing our best not to. There are certainly many groups in Latin America where there are three, four, five writing systems in competition, each championed by a particular community, which has worked with some outsider that insisted this is the right way. And always, when you have that situation, one or more of them are brought by, by missionary activity. And it is an unfortunate reality that... Very few of the folks who are, whose primary goal is to translate the Bible and create a you know, plant the flag of the church in these kinds of settings, very few of them have the time also to study deeply in the linguistic issues involved in get, coming up with a good writing system. Mm. And so often in that competition for writing system, you can, you can look and in very short order see which one it ought to be, but it's not your call as a linguist. Mm. And that one's, that's a problem. Fortunately here we don't have that problem. Because right at the beginning, the missionaries were there, and they made the changes. And actually, I made the changes that the people were calling for me to make. Um, But at least I was able to frame it in, these are the sounds that need symbols. Now, you guys figure out how you're going to write them. And uh, that was, the missionaries participated, and, and we came out with a unified writing system, which I think will be to everyone's benefit. And I feel bad. The Akawayo, that didn't happen. And the missionary writing system was so bad that we had a, I, one of the things I do when I'm working in a village somewhere is I'll say, hey, anyone who wants to talk words, come on down. I will show you five words, or words from five different languages for any words you give me in your language. And so we started doing that with Akawai, and we're having fun you with know, these related languages. And... and you know, they were telling me how to spell the word in the missionary way, and I was showing them how to spell them in the way that my student Desiree had come up with. And, and then I said, well, how do you say this word, for instance? And I wrote it on the board in Desiree's, and they said, oh, we don't know. I said, well, come on, you, you just give me all these others. You're reading, right? Just tell me how you do it. No, he hasn't taught us that one yet turns out it was such a bad writing system that no one's been able to figure it out and so they just wait and he, the missionary actually teaches them sets of words every time they get together for writing systems and they have spelling bees to compete to see who can remember how to spell. The spelling is so disconnected from, from the speech that no one's figured it. No one had figured it out as of, that was 2004. Um, so I, that's, that's a situation that I really do not want to see any group get into. And that would be one, if I had continued to work there, I would have probably gotten into a fight. Uh, I'd say that one's worth fighting for. Because everybody was able to read and write in Desiree's system within about a half an hour. You know, And these people have been working with this guy for years, and they needed him to tell them how to spell a new word.
0: And that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions for Spike? This story that you're translating... Is that, to, is that going to be in your book, or it sounds like an interesting story? Is it an origin story? Do they? Continue? It is
1: a. It's a part of a much larger okay. origin story.
0: Sorry.
1: Um, what? But but it's a part that they actually have a name for. They call Amuye Matau uh, So it's the 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 Paku fish woman. Okay. Um, and the um, the proposal that i got, I'm going to create the translation, the original, and the mm-hmm. translation. And time-connected, time-linked to this recording so that they can have audio books, as it were. Okay. And this will be for them. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to ask permission, say, can I, like, publish this somewhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it could come out as just a story. There yeah. are various venues for publishing stories. Right. Um, and uh, But ultimately, the primary reason for translating it is so that they would have it available. And that's really... But the secondary reason is, I just, I need people to see how cool this is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but that's a, that's a selfish reason that doesn't in itself justify the work. And so I'm, I'm hoping they will agree. And I think they will. They're pretty proud of their culture. Yep. As every time I've asked for permission, like I said, you know, can I can I share some of this? Can I share photos and some of this recording with October because he wants to write about it? And they're like, yeah, you can do that. I said, can he do a comic? Yeah, more people will know how you know will know what we're about. And it's like now they're saying, can he do more? So so far I haven't run into that. The, the North American cultures have been far more traumatized by their contact with mm-hmm. the Western world, mm-hmm. and they are much more or say, reluctant to give that kind of permission to people. You've already destroyed enough. You, know, you don't need to ruin this, too. The folks I'm working with have not had much of that kind of experience. And they are, they have not been made over generations to feel ashamed for their identity. And so I think they're, the like, my best guess is, that unless they become part of a larger political culture that includes you know, sort of identifying with uh, indigenous folks from both North and South America mm-hmm. that has particular politics that, right. that sort of get infused throughout the organization, unless something like that happens, I'm anticipating they're going to want all of this to be public domain. Mm-hmm. They're being cautious. Mm-hmm. They're not saying to put this whole recording on the Internet, for instance, mm-hmm. but they're saying... Should happen someday. And yeah, let them see the story. Let them see the writing part. You know, I think the, the actual sound of the man's voice is, they were willing to let me share this, for instance, in this talk. Uh, and and notice, I did two routes. I went to his family members that I'm in touch with and said, do you agree for your grandpa's voice to be out there? And then I went to the village leadership, the chiefs of the different places. It's like, do you agree for this representation of your culture to be out there? And everyone said the same thing. They were all like, this is, we're proud. We are proud of this. Why would we hide it? And I, I would dearly hope that continues. And if it doesn't, well, it's their call.
0: <laughs> so can we get on your email list when you publish it? <laughs> I will
1: send something to the Oregon Humanities Center at least. And, yeah, I would, I would like to share this story. i got to say, I've got it all into Portuguese now. Although, again, I've got this issue that a part of it is double, tra- double lines translated. A part of it is done in the other way where I, there's all the words that aren't in the original, then the exactly. sound words. And I just, they both feel so wrong. I still haven't figured out a way to make it feel good. And that's, you know, I think uh, October could help me out with that yeah. if he's got a spare year now to do the whole yeah. story. <laughs> that felt right. And they, they endorsed yeah. that. They were thrilled with that, that four panels. It was like cool. he got it. <laughs> so I, I could really see a future in that kind of thing as well. If we just you know it's that's an awful lot of awful lot of person power to, to make those panels, to make those designs. And you know, ideally it should come from from within. And you know, I just don't have the skills to offer them any help at all. I could bring materials <laughs> and say, go for it. <laughs> And, and we could get models, perhaps, that would give them an alternative or a way of thinking about it. But I don't know what they're going to do. And their exposure to literacy is primarily the books that come to the schools, which are all in Portuguese, and all the pictures you expect of grade school books. And so I don't know if they're going to want to imagine that... The great literature of our people will be represented as great school reading printers. You know, I don't know. A graphic novel, they might that that's got a little more heft maybe. I just I don't know where it's gonna go, but I am excited because this is a completely new turn in my you know academic work. I'm not doing all the technical linguistics that I was. I will, I mean I can't help myself. But I've actually gotten a long ways away from the speakers in my work in the last 20 years. And I am thrilled to be getting back to the speakers and really plugging in. And now that there's the internet, I don't even have to have 36-hour, you know, plane trips to get into the neighborhood, <laughs> followed by days on boats. You know, now I can just say, "Oh, <laughs> okay, click the thing." What? They haven't logged on yet. <laughs> and they're going Starlink in June, which apparently will change. Their current upload speed is slow. Like half the days, it's, you know, pixelated pictures. And I don't always get beautiful pictures of them like I I shared here. Sometimes they're barely recognizable as people. And I do a screen share to say, oh, look, here's what I did with this thing that we were doing. And they're like, yeah, I can't read it. (laughs) What, do I need to make it bigger? No, you need to do it tomorrow. (laughs) A little bit of cloud cover, the internet doesn't work. So... Let's see. Starlink is supposed to be, I don't know, 20 times faster
2: and hopefully more robust. We'll find out. So join me in thanking, especially.